If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, verse, starting verse 8. It's on page 1015 in your pew Bibles. And uh, as you are turning, I appreciate the fact that uh, as Josh was talking about baptism, uh, the uh, correlation in how Scripture folds over into Scripture so often, and it, it's, it's so amazing. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we believe the inerrancy and fallibility of God's Word is that from Genesis 1-1 to the last verse in Revelation does not contradict itself, but it speaks to each other and encourages and it shows what God is doing and what He's telling us as a people. So let us hear from God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, So that you, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, the word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come now into your presence that you would speak to us Lord, may the Spirit sweep through this congregation. 
Father, may you use the words of your servant who is sinful and who is broken and fallen like everybody that sits in this presence. But Lord, may you use these words to change us, to mold us, to make us, to break us, to be more like Jesus Christ, less like ourselves. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I remember hearing a missionary once talk about a play that uh, he had been to in Laos or Cambodia. I forget which country. Uh, But he went with his translator. He was doing some services there. And uh, in this play, it's uh, kind of like a Romeo and Juliet. And uh, there's a young man in the court of the king. And he has his, his eyes and his heart to this young lady and uh, throughout the, the play uh, he is found out and, and then the, the king makes an accusation against him and he's brought up on charges and, and then at the last moment uh, the, the young man is, is found innocent and uh, it looks like everything's going to end well and then the king just has him executed because he has designs on this girl and he wants her his wife and that's how it ends. And as they walk out, kind of in stunned silence, uh, the missionary turned to his translator, who, who was not a Christian, and, and said, uh, oh, wow, that was an interesting play. And the translator basically said, yes, um, you know, the message of that play was that man needed a savior and he didn't have one and that's kind of the story of our country it seems right now Nitschke wrote I probably butchered his Frederick wrote what really arouses indignation against suffering is not suffering as such but the senselessness of suffering he wrote that in the genealogy of morals in 1887 Uh, and I think That is the prevailing view of the world out there that they're looking, they're seeking, they're trying to find meaning, especially in the face of suffering. Now let's juxtapose that against a guy named William Stark, who was a regional manager for International Christian Concern. And in 2013, in September 22, Two suicide bombers walked into a church in Pakistan and they blew themselves up. And 127 Christians were killed. 250 were injured. And he gets on the phone with one of the staff members there whose family members had died and is broken. And he's saying, I need help. And he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring forth God's word and comfort and encourage you. He said it was incredibly difficult But he said that he believed in the sovereignty of God and that God was going to work through that suffering. Now, we may not, as a group, suffer like that. Somebody may not walk through and blow up a bomb and kill most of us here. But there is suffering in our midst that is going on. Suffering in your life. There's suffering that happened in California. A church like ours, they were shut down, they were fined. They said, you're not going to meet. 
And the people stood up and said, we are going to meet. And they were persecuted by the state. There's been bakers that have been florists. There have been internet designers across the United States. Their faith has been challenged and they said, I'm going to stand up and I am not going to do things and I'm not going to say things and I'm not going to produce things that have something to do with what I don't believe what God's word says. I can't do it. And they have been put out of business. They have been arrested. They have been mocked. Because they were making a Christian stand. And we come now to this portion. And, and Peter and Josh and Davis, we've been preaching about the suffering that's gone on with women that were married to non-Christians. How did they, how did they relate to their husbands in a marriage where they became Christians and they weren't? How did they relate missionary or, or citizens to the authorities of Rome because Peter's writing this probably under Nero, who's burning Christians alive and throwing them into the arena. And he's exported that. And Peter's telling the people, encourage them, here's how you relate as a Christian to authorities and powers over you. How do you relate to specific instances of people being unjust to you? How do you relate as a slave to a non-Christian owner. And so he's been talking about that. And now he comes here and he kind of makes a pivot. And in verse 8 he says, finally, all of you. And what he's saying is now, I want to talk to you about, as a group, all of you, it's a plural. All of you, all of us, y'all. He's been talking about perseverance in your faith while suffering. And he's going to address three things. He's going to address the church or the body of believers when we face suffering together. The Christian individual when you or me, we face suffering individually. And then he's going to talk about how Christ's suffering and his triumph gives us hope in the face of suffering. First, the church and its suffering. We see that in verses 8 through 12. And as Peter turns to the people and he says, all of you, perhaps Peter has in mind Paul's admonition in Romans 13, 8, when he says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has filled the law, fulfilled the law. And he's talking to the church as we look inward and he gives five traits in verse 8. He said, this, these are the traits that the church, we as a group, need to have when there's suffering going on. Number one, he says, unity of mind. Unity of mind. The, the Greek gives us a glimpse into the meaning of this. It means have the same perspective, thinking and acting biblically. It doesn't mean that we're to be uniform, that we're all the same. He just punches, you know, no. He says there's diversity. And that's a good thing because God has given us gifts. And what he's saying is, if you look at Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, he says everybody in the church has gifts and they're to be used for the building up of one another. So he says we're to be cooperating with one another in the midst 
of whatever suffering, heartache that comes along. Number two, he says, we're to have sympathy. We're to be compassionate. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Enter into people's lives, especially when they're hurting. And you say, I'm with you, brother, sister. And be compassionate. Then it says we're to have brotherly love. The Greek word is Philadelphos, which is Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. We're to love one another from a pure heart. That's 1 Peter 1.22. He says in the first chapter, love one another, have Christian love for each other. Then he says we're to have tender hearts in our church. Merciful. The Greek literally means to have a gut level response. Your gut, down deep soul, you're to have that relationship. It's to go out. You're concerned for your brothers and sisters, what they are going through. And you're to move towards them. You go to them in mercy. You don't step away, but you move to them in mercy. And then finally, he says, have humility, have a humble mind. One commentator says, have a deep sense of your littleness by comparing yourself to Jesus Christ. Go back and read Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I'm going to give you some assignments today, but that's one section. Go back, read that, and it says we are to have the same mindset that Jesus Christ did. He was humble. He said that's the humility that we are to have around us, that we're being others we're looking for others instead of saying, hey, what about me? What about... We're to look out for others. And verse 9 shows us how we are to move those traits into our lives. And he, Peter fleshes those out with practical applications. He says, don't repay evil for evil, insult for insult. But be, on the contrary, you're to bless those that you were called to be, have a blessing. And, you know, and I, that for you were called, that, that word, that idea means this, that God is inviting you and he's inviting me to join in his kingdom working the things that he wants us to do to build up his kingdom. We just, we just prayed about it in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God invites us, you and me, to be a part of building this kingdom within the church, within the world. So he's inviting us. He says, I want you to come in and be a kingdom builder. And when you do, you're going to receive a blessing. And again, that word gives the idea of being large with, not being large physically, but large with what God gives you. And a good example of that is from Psalm 23, 5, where it says, My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. But he says, my cup overflows. Overflows with what? He's talking about the wine of celebration being poured down into a cup while the world around him is going to chaos and to pot. And when... David is saying, God is sitting me down and he's pouring the wine of gladness and it is overflowing. God is just pouring out into my life great joy. 
And he says that in the times of persecution, of suffering, of hardship, when through the power of the Holy Spirit, we react in the way that the world is not going to react to us in. He says, you're going to receive a blessing from me. And I, I can't categorize that. I can't tell you how exactly that's going to be. But I do know it's going to happen because God makes the promise. And he says, I invite you to do that. And then he, he moves to basically three applications, how we're supposed to react under pressure of suffering and hardship and trials in verses 10 through 12, Peter quotes Psalm 34, 12 through 16. And if you look at, go back and look at that psalm, that's when David is on the run. He's, he's in Gath. He's in the, the Philistine stronghold. And a lot of the generals and the people of the Philistines say, hey, to the king, this is the guy that killed 10,000 of our people. What's he doing here? Let's, I think you should kill him. And David fakes like he's crazy. His beard goes out. He's slobbering. He's scratching. And the king says, get him out of here. I have enough crazy people, which we can believe if you look at government and courts. You can understand that. But David writes this psalm. He says, I was close to being, I was this close, I think, to dying. And, and Peter writes, whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace. Pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he's saying three things. Here's what we can do. If you don't walk out of here with much, walk out of here with this. One, he says, get your attitude right. And that attitude is this, desire love and desire life and see good days. That is, your attitude should be, I want to serve Jesus Christ. He's called me here. And not only do I want to serve Jesus Christ, I look around and one of the easiest ways to serve Jesus Christ is to serve the people within the church, especially people that are hurting. So... If you want to know what to do, if you see somebody that you know is hurting in this church, you say, how can I help them? I remember being wheeled through an um, airport years ago when I suffered heart issues. And uh, it was very humiliating to have my wife push me in a wheelchair through an airport. And, and I was just chafing under that. And Deborah said, let me do that for you. Let me do that for you. Then when I got home, I had some people come up. So I want to cut the grass. And it was hard at first because I had always been one of the people that was going to cut the grass. I was one of the people wheeling people through the airport. But I had to sit back and I had to be ministered to. And it was a blessing. I received a blessing and, and the people received a blessing. I can't tell you, I've been here 20 years now, March 1st. I've been blessed so much by this congregation, by these people by you and by the people that have gone on before me to heaven. Um, but our attitude, your attitude should be, I want to serve people around me. How do you be that way? Well, Jesus Christ comes into your heart. 
And he says this, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me, for whatever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul or his life? That's the attitude. And we're going to get to it in a moment about what Christ has done for us. He has sacrificed and saved us and he says, have that same attitude. Deny yourself for my sake. Show it in people's lives here. And he says, secondly, he says, your speech. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit or non-truths. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, his person's religion is worthless. And that's hard to do. And he said, get, get control of your tongue. Because if you're like me, when somebody attacks you, and especially they're doing it because you're, or being a Christian, you want to fire back. You want to let them have it right back. And God says, hang on. Do not respond how they respond to you. If they've attacked you verbally, you don't return that, that speech. Number three, he says, your actions. And I kind of talked about that. Pursue and make peace for the mutual upbuilding. Work with what God has given you. But what about the enemies are seeking war and they're refusing to respond back in peace? What if you're trying with people, the world, whatever, they are coming at you and you want to pursue and seek peace and you want to show love and compassion and they don't want to do it. What do you do? Peter says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he's going to repay. We trust God to protect us and to provide for us. And God says, if you mess with my church, you're messing with me. And we have to believe that and we have to trust that. And God says, I will provide, I will take care. And to the people in Pakistan, God says, I'm watching. And there's going to come a day, we're going to get it towards the end of this section, where there's going to be judgment. Josh talked about the time at Noah. Skip ahead. People that were wicked and seeking not the things of themselves, but the things, not the things of God, but the things for themselves. God says he brings judgment with the water. And if you look at Revelation, there's going to be a final day of judgment. And everybody is going to stand up and they're going to be tried. And God says, everything that you've ever done is going to be put there on the wall. And I'm going to deal with you. And if you are suffering, if you're going through trials and tribulation, it may not be resolved to your liking, to your understanding, to your desires here, but one day it will be. And God says, my eyes are on you. My ears are listening to your prayers. I am aware. And when you pray to me, don't think it just bouncing off the ceiling. I'm hearing them. And my face is against those that do evil. And that's a fearsome thing. Which brings us to verses 13 through 17. Peter then turns again from talking to the whole to the individual. He says, now, who is there to harm you? You as a person. 
If you love Christ and you're dying to self, he says, suffering is going to come. He says, not if, and, or maybe. It's going to come. And he doesn't make it theoretical. He says, no, it's, it's coming and it's real. And I'm, I know it's real. And he says that if you're suffering for righteousness sake, for righteousness sake, because you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and if you're suffering because of that, you are a Christian. You're walking, listen young people in school. If you're going to suffer because you're acting as a Christian, God says, be encouraged. He doesn't say there, you're not going to be troubled, but he says, ultimately, you're not going to be harmed. You're not going to be harmed. Peter says that you will receive a blessing. Two things. He says you will be blessed by God. You will receive something so large that you can't comprehend it. He talked about that in 1 Peter 1.8. Again, for me to stand up here, anybody to say, here's a blessing that you're going to get when you respond in the proper way to suffering that comes your way and say, this is going to be it. We shouldn't say that. But God says right here, you're going to receive something very large. A blessing from me that you just can't understand or comprehend it. And when you get it, when it comes your way, it's going to be filled with inexpressible joy that you just can't really describe it. But it is in your heart, in your soul, in your life, and you know it. And he says, don't be afraid, don't be troubled. In Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. They may hurt you, but they cannot harm you. We harm ourselves when we do not trust God is sovereign over our circumstances and that He's with us. He has not abandoned us. In verses 15 through 16, and He says this, if you do not get the voice of martyrs, it's a magazine, I, I I wish I brought it and showed it to you. You ought to get it. You ought to give something. Get the magazine that comes once a month. People are suffering, suffering with their lives. This last week that came, talked about three widows whose husbands were martyred, murdered, assassinated because they were Christians. And how they respond. Almost all three of the ladies said at first, it was tough. It was hard. And they said, we struggled. We wanted God to bring down fire on these people. But ultimately, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in a powerful way, God granted them forgiveness for those that persecuted them, killed their husband. When that is happening, when you are suffering unjustly, people are watching. They are watching. And some of them want to know why. This one lady in Nepal was talking about people coming up to her and say, tell me about this Jesus. Because I've been watching you. And she says, I keep it simple and straightforward. Jesus loves me. He has changed me. He has forgiven my sins. And he'll do the same for you. That's the gospel. And Jesus says that in our heart... 
at the very core of our being, our emotions, our will, our desires, when it comes together, you put aside Jesus Christ as your priority. Because when you do that, people are going to notice. And they're going to want to know, can you tell me? And we are to be a defense attorney in a sense. We're to make a defense, an apologetic. We're not to apologize, but we're to give a reason. Why are you a Christian? Why are you reacting the way that you're reacting in the face of persecution and trial and tribulation? Why? And you say, here's a reason why. And he says, Peter says, do this with gentleness and respect. Don't slander people, even if you've been slandered. Don't do it. Treat people with respect. Not insulting them. When they ask you why you are a Christian, how do you respond the way you're responding? And they say, I couldn't do it. And you say, here's how I've done it. You give the fact that Jesus lives within you and He's forgiven your sins. Which brings us to our last point. Christ's suffering. This brings us victory and hope. Verses 18 through 22. And Peter says, For Christ suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Please go and read 2 Corinthians today, chapter 5, starting about verse 11, and read all the way down. This is probably, I think, what Peter's thinking about. He's probably read Paul's epistle. And he is thinking about the hope that he has it's based on Jesus Christ. Verse 18 is the key to this whole section on suffering. He says, first of all, there's justice. Christ, who was righteous, had no sin. He was perfect, divine, the second person of the Trinity. He takes upon himself the sins of us. That's you and me. And he pays for them because we can't pay for them. And then there's entrance. By paying the price for our sins on the cross and effectually removing them, Christ enables the believer now to establish an intimate relationship with God the Father, removing all the barriers that keep us from God. Romans 5, 2 says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Everything has been removed. We have an interest to have a relationship with the living God because of the basis of Jesus Christ's work and it's freely given to you. And then there's victory. That's because the resurrection is so important. If you go back and you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with reports that he's heard saying, hey, I'm hearing that people are saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ is no big deal. I won't go into it all right now. But that was the Greek mindset and philosophy. And he's saying, that's, that's at the very heart of what we believe. Because if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is worthless and we're to be pitied. He says it's all about the resurrection. Because the resurrection proved that what Jesus Christ said he was going to do for you and for me, that he was going to forgive our sins, he proved it. He defeated death and sin on the cross. And we have hope. That when we die, we're going to heaven. And we have hope that no matter what kind of suffering that we're going through, either individually or as a body, we're going to triumph by God. And we can be encouraged. 
Then he, I'm not going to go into verse 19 through 20 a whole lot, but it's kind of interesting. It says, when Christ suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous, bringing us to God, and then he goes and he preaches to the spirits in prison that formerly did not obey. In, the, in patience, he waited the days of Noah. I'm not sure exactly. I'll be the first to admit. But there are two kind of views on that. That during the days of Noah, it took him 100 years to build the ark. He was preaching to the people. And Christ through Noah was telling them, hey, the judgment's coming. The judgment's coming. You need to turn from your ways. You need to follow God, have a relationship just like Noah for 100 years. And then it time comes, it's over. Eight people go into the ark and they are saved. As Josh said, God brings judgment of the water. Some people have said the three days that the body was in the tomb, the spirit of Christ went down to hell and proclaimed victory and triumph and said, hey, just watch, just watch. I'm going to win. I'm triumphing over death. I'm here to tell you what I said was true and now it's going to happen. I'm not real sure. Maybe God will tell us. But it's about the triumph of Christ over the grave, over the power of sin, over death. And that's the hope that we have here, that no matter what you're going through, you're going to triumph over it. may not come out to the liking that you would wish or your desire, but he says, you're going to triumph because I promise that. I have overcome sin and death, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to carry you through. And then verse 21 deals with the baptism it's a symbol of cleansing the believer from the sin, the dirt and grime of sin. And he says it's more than just, the water's more than just washing the dirt away from us. It's to wash away the sin. So wash away the sin. That's for believer's baptism. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have believer's baptism. But we have infant baptism. It talks about two just what Joshua was saying. In Colossians 2, 11 through 12, it seems to say, because Gentiles are coming into the faith, this is not just for the Jews, this is for Gentiles, for men and women, boys and girls, we're going to change the sign of circumcision to baptism. An entrance into my community. And in the Greek verse, an appeal of God of a good conscience, kind of believes the believer is to respond to God in his promises. He's made a promise. And he says, respond to my promise. Come have your children baptized. Have them enter into this church so that one day as they look at you as a parent or look around to the church, they're going to say, I want some of that. I want Jesus in my life. Just as I see that, I want Jesus. And we'll say, hey, you've been baptized. That was a sign, a seal, so that when the day comes and you stand up here and you say to the church, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And the elders and the pastors and Kathy and those that have worked with the youth said, yeah, I've, I've seen it. They understand it. And we're going to say, hallelujah, you're a part of us as community members. There was a... Dwight L. Moody came out of a store in Chicago years ago and uh, saw a shoeshine boy reading the book of Revelation. I think I've said this before. And he looks down at the little boy and he's impressed. And he says, young man, do you understand what you're reading? Because I'm not sure I do. And the little boy looks up and says, yeah, we win in the end. 
We win in the end. And that's verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Because Jesus is at the right hand of God, all angels, demons, and the powers of this world are subject to him. He's triumph over them. And he's coming back. The saints are coming with them that are in heaven. We that are alive are going to be caught up. And then there's going to be, I think, I think, final judgment. So we wait patiently. Even while we suffer, we live by grace and faith and point to Jesus Christ as the author and finisher of our faith, the reason for our hope. And we tell others that too. They can know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They can be right relationship. Do not be discouraged, dear people. Do not be discouraged. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have come and you are with us. We are not by ourselves. As we go into the world to preach Jesus, we go with your power. And Father, we thank you that as a body of believers, we can serve one another, we can encourage one another. Lord, may our attitudes, our actions, our speech be pleasing in your sight. And Father, we know we mess up. Lord, I mess up daily. Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sins. When we blow it, you come alongside of us, either by your word or your spirit or our brothers and sisters to put your arm around us and to point us to the cross, to point us to heaven, and to encourage people to come with us. Lord, I pray for those that are suffering greatly within this congregation. May they know the love, the compassion, the tenderheartedness, the unity of this body in love for you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.